Thank you for listening to this message from Tree of Life Church. Our prayer is that it will be a blessing to you and that you will find it helpful for life. So open up your heart to receive God's word for you. Good evening, everybody. How are we doing tonight? Good. Hey, can I just say this is the best part about church is when you look around the room, people from all different walks of life getting to know each other. I got a response in Spanish when I said, how are you doing tonight? But I love that about church is we come from different backgrounds, diverse cultures, but we come together under one name and that's the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And so we are going to be obviously talking about the word of God today. I was just thinking as I was sitting there, it's a weird, weird year in America. I mean, it's an election cycle, which those are always a little weird. Um, The Dallas Cowboys are winning, which is weird. I don't know. Uh, Aggies are better than the Longhorns. Like life is just weird in America now. I don't care about any of the football stuff. So I'm a musician. I'm a basketball guy. I'm just waiting for the Spurs to come back. Amen. Awesome. But uh, we're going to talk about the one thing that does not change, and that is the word of God. And so uh, I'm going to read a passage out of scripture for you, and then we're going to pray and we're going to dive into this. So Genesis 3 verses 1 through 11 says this in the New Living Translation. It says the serpent was the shrewdest. Look at your neighbor and say shrewdest. The shrewdest of all wild animals that the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say that you must not eat from fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you'll die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. Can we just stop and talk about why she's talking to a snake? God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it could give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you love us. And God, you loved us enough not to leave us on our own after Jesus went back to heaven. But you left us with two incredible things, your Holy Spirit living on the inside of each and every believer and the word of God. It's a lamp into our feet. It's a light into our path. It directs us in life. And so God, we thank you that today we get to learn from the word of God together. So I ask that you would help me to teach it accurately, Father, to convey your heart and ask that you'd help us to receive this word with gladness. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. If you're here today and you need some notes, would you lift your hands? There are ushers that wanna get those to you. I wanna jump into this really quick. If you need notes, again, you can lift your hands as ushers waiting to get those to you. But I do wanna jump into this real quick. 
Um, this account, if you've never heard it before, is the account of the first man and woman ever, Adam and Eve. And the serpent in this story is the devil. And he comes in the form of a serpent and he begins talking to Eve. And I, read a, I was reading a book where somebody said the first problem was that she held a conversation with him. And I thought that was really interesting. But this is also the account of the first sin ever committed by a human. Now the devil had already done wrong stuff and all the people, the angels, I'm sorry, that followed him. But this is the first sin ever committed by a human. And if you don't know what a sin is, we say that word all the time. I wonder how often we truly know what it means. But really what it just means in the literal translation is missing the mark or violating God's law. Adam and Eve tried to take on God's role by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you looked at what she said, she said, it said that the fruit seemed good to her and she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. She tried to take on God's role and so did Adam. And I've been thinking a lot lately about the cause of things in life. I was taught at a young age that things don't just happen. Some big thing, whether it's great or bad, doesn't just happen one day. Generally, it starts as a small thing and many small things build to become uh, one big thing. And I looked at that in this story and I want to present to you kind of my version of how I think this progressed. I think that when Eve began to talk to the serpent, distrust took place. And you'll see this progression on your notes. Dist distrust took root. She began to believe God's holding out on me. There's something that he's not telling me that he doesn't want me to know but I bet it would be good for me to know. And then you see it shifts to pride because distrust will always lead to pride and pride will always breed more distrust because her distrust, wondering if God could be holding out on me, shifts to I want to become wise like God. And then from there, it turns into all out rebellion. And she does the very thing that she knows that God told her not to do. And her husband, I don't know what he's thinking. Because he's standing there like, mm, this is, I don't know if this is good, but I'm just going to go with it. I have no clue what he was thinking in that moment. But he should have stopped it. All the ladies are like, yes. Uh, so rebellion happens and rebellion is sin. And then what happens? Shame. Because in this environment, it was a pure and an innocent environment. They had no idea that they were actually physically naked. They had no clue because it was such an innocent and a pure environment. But when sin comes in, shame enters as well. And they feel the need to cover themselves. Then they hear God, so they feel fear. And fear causes them to run and hide from God. If you follow distrust all the way through till its end, you will always separate yourself from God. Amen. Hear this. The separation does not come because God cut you off. The separation comes because you ran. Amen. So let's look at the opposite of that progression. Again, this is my take on this. Love 
It begins with love, God's love for you and I. And it leads to trust. We see the fruit of God's love for us that he really does care about us. Psalm 23, 6, he's been pursuing us with goodness and mercy all the days of our life and it's catching up to us and we feel his love. So we begin to trust him in a greater measure. And trust leads to humility because trust is where we maybe begin to realize that perhaps he knows better than I do. And if he loves me, then he's probably got good plans for me. Humility always leads to obedience. So we finally say, God, I'm not as good at this whole life thing as you are because you created it. So I'm gonna obey you. Obedience leads to closeness. And closeness leads to freedom. Now, obedience leads to closeness. What do I mean by that? Well, Pastor Don's been talking about covenant relationships. And and in a covenant relationship, there are certain things that you do to protect the connection. If you've ever known somebody or maybe been in this position where you had a young adult or maybe a teenager in your home who consistently would not obey to the point where you you maybe had to tell them, listen, it's time for you to move out because of whatever was happening, whether they were bringing drugs into the home, who knows what that may be. It wasn't that you didn't want to connect with them. It was that in this covenant relationship in our home, I have to protect all of the other covenant relationships, but I need you to obey to protect the connection with me. Does that make sense? I need you to obey so that we can stay connected. Obedience is not to get God to like us. Obedience is so that we can stay close to God and stay connected. You don't not cheat on your spouse out of fear of getting in trouble. You don't commit adultery because you value the connection you have with your spouse. And so that type of obedience is what we're getting at today. And that's what leads to closeness. And closeness with God always leads to freedom. There's a contrast between the way that the devil works and the way that God works. God uses his actions to pursue us with love. It's preemptive. I didn't do anything like Pastor Dave said to deserve God's love. And I certainly didn't do anything to invite it to come my way. Because in this, God demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Before you were born, Jesus died for you. And so it doesn't, you can't claim that, well, I did something to invite God's love. You didn't. God was preemptive in his action and his actions showed that he was pursuing us with love, which ultimately leads to trust. What the devil does is he uses words to persuade you that God is not trustworthy. So God shows it with his actions through love, that he is trustworthy. And the devil uses his his words to persuade you that God is not trustworthy. Our natural reaction is to run from God when we've sinned. Jesus flipped that. And he told us a better way. In Hebrews 4.16, it talks about we can come boldly before the throne of God's grace to receive mercy in time of need. Jesus' 
Death on the cross meant that no longer do we have to run from God when we sin, but we should run to God for grace and mercy. Have you ever noticed that the first thing that God did after Adam and Eve sinned was come down and look for them? And I was thinking about that today and maybe yesterday as well about he came and he said, where are you? And he looked for them. And I don't think it's a coincidence that when Jesus came to the world, he started telling stories and using parables and and metaphors like a shepherd would leave the 99 to go after the one that was lost. Or about the lady who lost a coin and she was pulling up the couch cushions like you know you do if you lost your wallet in the house, right? One time I lost my wallet with credit cards, everything I had in there, ID, all that stuff, got it all replaced, found it under my bed. It was like, awesome. Have you ever done that before or is it just me? So he uses these metaphors about looking for something that's lost. I don't think Jesus just stumbled upon those metaphors. I don't think that he just threw those out there lightly. The first thing God does when Adam and Eve sins is he runs to look for them and Jesus comes and he says, I'm looking for you too. Look at this statement in Genesis 3 verse 8. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Did you catch that one important word? Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Think about this. Adam and Eve hid themselves from God's presence walking in the garden. But I wonder if because of our fear and our shame and our pride and all of those things, if we hide ourselves from God's presence working in our hearts. They hid themselves from the presence of God that was walking in that garden. But I think so many times we hide ourselves from the presence of God at work in our hearts. And I think a major source of that issue for Christians today is a performance mentality. If I'm not good enough, if I'm not perfect, if I'm not awesome at this whole Christianity thing, then God might not love me. And he might not accept me. And to be honest, I think that's kind of built into society at large. It always has been, I really think. I don't think it's something that's unique to our culture, but we feel that way. We feel as though if we're not good enough or if we don't have the right car or the right shoes or the right job or whatever it is that we may not fit in. I heard somebody say one time, and this is not all the time what guys mean, but it is interesting. They said, what's the first thing a man asks another man when they meet each other? What do you do? It's almost like you're saying, how valuable are you? And we think that way in our society But one of the fundamental problems with the performance mentality is that it leads us to believe that it's more important to do works for God than to allow him to work in us. Because I have to produce. I have to make sure that I am doing all these things so that God can use me. But I think that God would say, if you would let me work in you, then eventually you being used by me would be a natural thing. I want to get on this tangent really quick. God didn't ask Adam when he came down, Adam, are you doing your job? 
Because Adam in Genesis 2 had been given a job. I don't know if you know that, but it said that he was there to tend and maintain the garden. He was a green thumb. He was a gardener. He basically ran a really sweet greenhouse. And God didn't come down and go, Adam, are you doing your job? Because I noticed that there's some weeds growing up and I'm kind of concerned about that. But God came down and he said, where are you? And then when Adam said, well, I was afraid because of this and that, God said, who told you that about yourself? And I think sometimes as Christians, we're so concerned that God is going to question us about whether we're doing enough to ministry, uh, to minister, or we're doing enough to fulfill our purpose. But I bet a lot of times, if we'd really let God talk to us, he'd say, not where are you, but how are you? And maybe if we would begin to really open up about how we are, he might say something like, who told you that about yourself? Because that didn't come from me. I was thinking about if you had a kid who was a really, really great football player, like NFL potential, but they were maybe in high school, senior in high school, and they broke their leg on the football field. I know this is possible that this could happen, but if it's you, please come forward and I'll pray with you at the end of service because you would not scream if they broke their leg, you're never gonna make it to the NFL. I'm never gonna get that brand new house, you know what I mean? You would say, is he okay? I gotta make sure that my son is okay. When we have problems, I don't think God's first reaction is, oh gee, they're not gonna fulfill their perfect purpose. He says, are they okay? Because the purpose stems out of health. Everything that you do to minister to people stems out of your own health. So basically what happened is Adam and Eve proved to us that attempting to do things on your own never really works. She said, I'm gonna get this wisdom and this knowledge of what's good and what's evil. And when she tried it on her own, she got the results that come from doing it on your own. In Philippians 1, 9 through 10, Paul describes for us God's way of doing things. And what's really interesting about this is Adam and Eve had this issue because they tried to gain wisdom and knowledge about the difference between right and wrong their own way and when God told them not to, and it messed everything up. But Paul in this passage is gonna describe for us how to get wisdom of what's right and wrong through God's way. He says, I pray that your love will overflow. Everybody say overflow. More and more. And that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. So those words, knowledge and understanding that Paul says, I want you to be, uh, your love to abound more and more that you'll keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. When Paul uses those words, what he means in, in the actual original language of what he's saying is knowledge of things ethical and divine is one way you could describe those or moral discernment and ethical matters. So Adam and Eve's disobedience saying, we want to learn right from wrong. And Paul's here on the other side of, of millennia saying, I'm going to teach you the right way to discern right from wrong. 
And I think we often miss the mark in life and we mess up because we either don't know God's definition of good and evil or, and this one is really tricky for us, especially if you've been in the church for a long time, you know God's definition of good and evil, but you try to do what's good in your own strength. Either way, you missed it. Then it's not gonna work. The Bible teaches that obedience is necessary to the Christian life, but that we will never be able to accomplish it in our own strength. So today I want to talk to you about, number one, why is obedience necessary? Because we live in America and Americans ask, why? Number two, because I think it's important that we truly grasp that concept. But also I want to talk about Paul's words in Philippians 1, 9 through 10 to help us not only, st- not only understand why we should obey, but how? Because sometimes we understand why we need to do something, but we don't understand how. And another thing about a lot of us, maybe guys, maybe it's mostly us, is we might understand mentally why we should do something, but if we don't understand how, a lot of times, you gotta back me up on this, we won't ask how. I'm in some ways that guy for sure. In some ways I'm not. I don't like to put things together without directions because I'd rather be doing something else. So let's just get this over with. But in a lot of areas of life, we tend to not ask how. So let's talk about why first. Why is obedience necessary? Number one, obedience is for my benefit. Here's what's so cool about God's rules. God's rule for Adam was one of freedom. He had so many things he could eat except one and that thing would harm him. It's kind of like if you walked into a Golden Corral. I'm going to give a very specific example of Golden Corral. And they said, everything in here is great, but that chocolate fountain will kill you because I don't know what's in there right now. I'm just kidding. I have a friend that works there and they they clean it a lot. But God's law was a liberating law. We think of law as restrictive, but God's law was meant to protect the existing freedoms that Adam already had. And every time God gives us a law, it's to protect our existing freedoms. The Bible says that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And it talks about don't return then to a yoke or or the chains basically of slavery. So when we walk in God's promises, we live in true freedom. B, if God establishes a law, it's for the purpose of protecting my freedom, not limiting it. In fact, James 1.25 says this, but if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. I think it's innate in humans to have this mentality that if I do what God says, I won't be able to experience this. Do you realize that the world that Adam lived in, he forsook God's instructions and God's freedom and God's best plan for his life so that he could take part in the world that he lived in. I think a lot of times we as Christians forsake God's instructions because we are trying to take part in the world that we live in. Number one, obedience produces freedom in my life. That's what we pull out of James 1.25, freedom from shame, fear, sin, etc. Freedom to be open, honest, and real. Number two, obedience opens the door for God's blessing. 
A lot of times I think this is for all of us. We wonder where the blessing of God is and it's behind the same door it always was, but we just haven't turned the knob and pulled it open. And obedience is turning the knob and pulling the door open. Really simple way to explain this is in the area of finances. A lot of times, just to be honest, we wonder where our finances are going, but we haven't followed God's plan for finances. Tithing, giving a tenth of our income to the local church. Generosity unlocks God's blessing on your life. If you want more info about that, we'd be glad to talk to you about it, or you can check it out for yourself in Malachi 3. It's always good to read it on your own. Number two, obedience is for God's glory. This quote's really cool. I heard it today. I was listening to a song and this quote came up in the song. A pastor got up and he began speaking. It said, grace and glory differ very little. One is the seed, the other is the flower. I think that's really cool because grace is a seed. And when we receive God's grace, it empowers Number one, it frees us from our past and our shame and our sin and all of the sins we'll ever commit. But then it frees us and empowers us to live the life that God created us to live. And when we do that, our lives are a beautiful testimony of God's glory. It glorifies God. Matthew 5.16 says, in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that they will praise your heavenly father. Obedience is the most genuine form of worship. Romans 12, one says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to Christ, holy and acceptable to him, which is your spiritual worship. In the message, it says this, your everyday life, your eating, sleeping, drinking, walking around life. Every breath is an act of worship. B, it's possible to participate in religious activities and not glorify God. First Samuel 15, 22 proves this to us. Amos 5, 23 as well proves this to us. In fact, God says in the Old Testament, the, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are, heart, are far from me. It's possible to do a religious checklist, but ignore God. Have you ever told your kid to do their chores and you watched their attitude while they obeyed and there was no honor in their heart, but there was some very shaky form of obedience? Their task is to wash the dishes and next time you go to take a drink, you don't know what was in your cup because they just were like, I don't care. It's possible to do a religious checklist and not honor God. And sometimes religious checklists are our mechanisms for ignoring God. I heard a preacher say one time that he was doing a uh, one-year Bible plan and he was way behind because he was on a speaking tour and he hadn't had time to read them all. And so he began reading and uh, he got to this one little section really soon, like a few minutes in, and the Lord just began speaking to him and teaching him through this scripture. And he said, oh man, I got to keep reading. I got 10 chapters to finish. And he ignored what God was teaching him and he kept going. And he's like, I realized like, I just ignored God so that I could complete the checklist. Sometimes it's our mechanism for that. But check this out. Number one, if you make sure that your heart is right with God, the outward signs will naturally flow. If you make sure your heart is right with God, 
the outward signs will naturally flow. You don't have to force it. You will have to, at times, force your flesh to be quiet. But your hunger for God will increase. Let's move on to number three. Obedience is a witness. In Philippians 2.10, the word blameless comes from a Greek word. He talks about, I want you to be blameless. And that Greek word basically refers to not stumbling or not causing somebody else to stumble. Paul's saying, I don't want you to stumble. I don't want you to cause anybody else to stumble. People should be able to look at my life and go, wow, there's something different about that person. Not by seeing my fish decal on my car after I cut them off. You know what I'm saying? There's a reason I don't put those on my car. (laughs) What? I didn't say that. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says, and you should imitate me, this is Paul speaking, as I imitate Christ. My goal is to act like Jesus to the best of my ability. My goal is not to be perfect because I'll never hit that mark, but my goal is to be imitating Jesus as much as possible. Not only is our obedience a witness, but also our humility and repentance when we miss the mark. Can I just say, I don't think we need any more people pretending like they're perfect. I think what is one of the best possible witnesses to people is when we're honest and transparent about places where we miss it and we're humble about it. And we just say, yep, that's me and that's why I love Jesus. And I'm working on that. Don't, please don't just say, it's me and I'll keep being that way. Don't pretend to be perfect. The world doesn't need perfection. It needs humble people. Because then they know, hey, I could probably do this too. Self-righteousness draws attention to our efforts, but true obedience points the focus towards Jesus' rescue at the cross. Self-righteousness says, look at me, be like me. True obedience says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And if I don't imitate Christ well, don't imitate me right then. Matthew 6 says not to call attention to yourself with your acts of praying or fasting. Let me be clear, that does not mean that you should not do those things in public. That means don't do them to get attention. Our level of obedience can be measured by our level of love for ourselves and others. Jesus said, they'll know you by your love for one another. So the reasons that we obey, we obey because it's for my benefit, we obey because it's for God's glory, and we obey because it's a witness to other people. But let's talk about how. How do I obey? Number one, focus on God's love. If you see what Paul says, he says, I pray that your love will abound more and more so that you would grow in knowledge and discernment or knowing what's right and wrong. And then it will produce character in you. If I focus on God's love for me, then I'll be better at discerning right from wrong. That's your blank in letter A. My priorities are in line when I'm focused on God's love. My priorities are in line when I'm focused on God's love. I think that's part of why Jesus was so great at, he would be walking around somewhere and somebody would interrupt him and he would have time to minister to them. 
because he loved people the way that God did. In fact, he's the one that told us that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. And then the second is like the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. True obedience is what happens when God's love overflows from our hearts and spills into our actions. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Proverbs said, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. An overflow of God's love is the difference between heartfelt obedience and behavior modification. Here's something that we have to understand. You cannot love people well if you don't allow God to love you and if you don't love yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is challenging to me. Do I, am I comfortable loving people the way that I love myself? Do I love myself enough that I'd be comfortable giving away that same love to someone else? And that's not arrogant. That's an understanding of your identity as God's kid. You didn't earn it, so don't get arrogant about it. Number two, realize that fruit is produced, not manufactured. Listen, there are only certain types of fruit that are manufactured. Those are things like fruit-flavored things, peach rings, Jolly Ranchers. None of those are right and good. We don't want manufactured fruit. I don't know what is in a peach ring. It's scary. You know what I'm talking about? Fruit is a natural product of a healthy tree. If you take care of your roots, your tree will produce fruit. You don't have to force a tree to produce fruit. You just take care of it. Letter B, Jesus produces fruit, not us. I'm gonna explain that for you. Philippians 1.11, it says that the righteous character that is produced by Jesus Christ. I am not saying that we don't partner in the process. But I am saying that in John 10.10, 10, Jesus describes the only way to produce fruit and it's staying connected to him. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. If you take Jesus out of the equation, there is no fruit. Letter D, if we're spending time with Jesus, we'll naturally start to think, talk, and act like him. I wanna say this really quick. Fruit takes time to mature. It is not an overnight process. We bought some avocados the other day. They looked all right, but they were hard on the inside. I want to give you a piece of advice for yourself and for other people. Sometimes people look like they should be producing a certain type of fruit that's nice and ripe and great, but they're not there yet. And they don't need you to point out their flaws. They need you to give them some time to mature. And sometimes you need to give yourself some grace to mature. Because people who point out flaws in other people have done it a million more times on their own heart. We need to give each other space to be a work in progress. We do not need to give each other a license to say, stay in the same place. But we need to give people the grace to be a work in progress. And if we're not giving people grace, I guarantee you it's because we're not giving it to ourselves. Last one, number three, understand that righteousness is who you are and holiness is living like it. Now, these terms can be somewhat interchangeable. Um, I'm not saying that this is something that is something you should always use these terms to mean this. 
because there are dynamics to where these terms can be interchangeable. But here's what you have to understand. You have been made righteous by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, not to take it on to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not that we might earn our righteousness, that we might become the righteousness of God. You are not defined by your past. Jesus has redefined you and given you a future. So here's what I mean mean by that statement. Righteousness is who I am. Holiness is living like it. My identity. I make this really easy. Sometimes we spend money like we're millionaires, but we're not. You know what I'm talking about? We went to the mall and it was payday and we're like, look at this. Oh yeah. We bought all this stuff and then we realize I'm not on that level. And then we go back and we return it. Righteousness would be understanding that in Christ, you're not barely making it. You're good to go. That he sealed the deal when Jesus died on the cross, that your sins were forgiven. There's nothing you can do to make him change his mind about you. So now I'm going to act like that squeaky clean person that he's made me into. Letter B, holiness isn't meant to impress God, but to honor him. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. I don't serve God to become righteous. I serve God because I'm thankful that he made me righteous. In order to actually walk out obedience, we've got to focus on God's love we got to realize that fruit is produced by staying close to Jesus, not manufactured by trying our best to follow all the rules. The rules will take care of themselves if we stay close. Number three, got to understand that Christ made me righteous and I'm going to act like it. Think about this. God wouldn't send Jesus to die for you on a cross, forgive you of all your sins, and then leave you alone to hopefully walk out the rest of it on your own. In the same way that he gave you salvation, he gives you the power, the ability, the will to obey him. Why? Because it's a law that brings freedom. Ask yourself this, have I been trying to accomplish obedience on my own? And if so, what's stopping me from allowing God to work in my heart? How can I lay down my pride this week and allow God to help me? We hope that you enjoyed this message. You can find more messages and information about Tree of Life Church at treeoflifechurch.org. We'd like to invite you to come visit us at 5513 IH35 South in New Braunfels, Texas. Or you can watch us on live stream. Thank you again for listening.